0: Join Aaron now as he reveals the reality foreshadowed and the new life we can now experience because of what the Lord Jesus accomplished for us. When it comes to
1: studying the scriptures or considering the Christian life or considering various theologies or discussions concerning different beliefs, it's very easy to lose track or to lose sight of what really is important. When we start getting into debates concerning various verses in the scriptures, wondering what do they really mean, it's easy to lose sight of the person who actually wrote them. When we start discussing denominational differences or doctrines or teachings that people believe concerning the faith or concerning what our God actually accomplished for us or what does that really mean in terms of our lives now, how do we live? How do we not live? Why do we live in a certain way? Why we don't live in a certain way? It's very easy to get lost in these kinds of discussions. It's very easy to become very preoccupied with these discussions. It's easy to point out where people are wrong and spend a lot of time talking about what we are not to do or what we are not to believe, and yet never really get around to what we are to do or what we are to believe. Nobody seems to focus on that very much. But in the midst of all these discussions and in the midst of all this study and examination and debate... It's very easy to lose sight of that which is most important. I sincerely believe that that which is most important is for you to know your God. It is for me, to me, the most important part of my life, that which I value the most, is the discovery of who my God truly is. Regardless of what happens in my life, regardless of my successes or my failures, regardless of my ability to say no to the temptations I struggle with in my daily life or whether I fall to those temptations, regardless of whether I have good relationships with those who are close to me or the relationships that I have with people who are close to me are not necessarily as good as I would like them to be, regardless of any of these things, that which I value the most, which I believe everyone should truly value, is to know your God. And I don't mean to know facts about Him, or to know necessarily what he has said in the past, or what he may do in the future, but to actually know him as a person, to know his character, to know what he values, to know what's important to him, to know what he is doing, to understand what he's not doing and why, and to understand his goals and his purposes, to see what his objectives are in this life that we have, in the life that many people have. In the world that he has created, in this world that he has created, there are so many aspects of it. And yet, collectively, they all form and define a purpose that he has established since the foundation, the the beginning, before things were even created here. And I believe an understanding of that, a discovery of that, and a true understanding to the extent where you can know him as a person is truly the greatest objective of all life, and that is to actually know Him to the extent where you can have a personal and interactive relationship with Him. In Hebrews chapter 6, beginning in verse 11, the writer says, And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And he was talking about the love that would be manifested within and through them as he was describing that in verse 10. In verse 10, for God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. This is a manifestation of our God within and through us that we experience him We receive the love that he has for us, and being the recipients of that love, as we walk and work in our daily lives that we have before us, we have many opportunities to share that love that we have received from our God with others. And this is something that we experience because we came to the end of ourselves. We came to the end of our lives in the world. When I came to the end of my life in the world, that was an end through which I was able to receive a new hope that he would give to me as a result of what he had actually accomplished. That was not just an end of my life in the world, it was also a beginning of my life in Christ Jesus, of being a saved believer, a resurrected child of God, a new creation in Christ Jesus. It was a beginning of that. And so in verse 11, when he says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence, I certainly don't believe that that means that you are to be diligent in the sense that you are to labor and work and try and strive and do whatever you can in order to do the works of God and love others. I don't think that that's what he's talking about. I think that what he's talking about is that this diligence has to do with being diligent to receive all that your God truly has for you, that he is giving you, that he has given to you as a result of what he accomplished for you, that this is the diligence, and so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. And that end is when we come to the end of ourselves. But it's also the end of our lives here, that we do have a life here. We have works that are being prepared for us by our God, and we walk in those works with the tools and the resources that he has given to us to labor and to do the work that he has given to us. And eventually we will reach an end of our lives here, which will again be another beginning of a new life in the kingdom of heaven. In verse 12, he says, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And this word imitator can certainly be quite deceiving. I mean, it doesn't mean just be an imitation of somebody or an imitation of something and not the real thing, but that we are to be real. We are to be real people real believers, real children of our God, not just be an imitation of someone else who has a good reputation, as is recorded in the scriptures. I don't believe that that's the focus of this verse, but instead the focus really is found at the end where he says, through faith and patience, inherit the promises. You know, the the examples of the people that we have in the scriptures, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, others, we, we have many examples of people And yet, in the midst of all of these examples, these were people who were looking forward to what they would inherit, the promises that they would eventually inherit. And when it came to Abraham, of course, he received a personal promise concerning his son Isaac, but the real promise is the promise of the Messiah, who has now been given to everyone. And through that promise, through the promise of him, we receive an inheritance, and that is an inheritance that we have been given. And so we don't labor trying to obtain promises or trying to obtain inheritance. There is no more labor to do. He has already done it all. When he died for our sins, he took away our sins. And when he rose from the dead, he restored to us the spirit of life that had been lost in Adam, that resurrected us, made us into a new creation, a child of the living God. And through that, we receive an inheritance that has been promised to us. The Lord Jesus is our promise, and the inheritance that we receive is an abundance of what we need. The inheritance has also been described as the Holy Spirit that is described as the deposit of the fullness of the inheritance, and in a sense, the Holy Spirit is all that we could possibly apply here on earth, and the rest of our inheritance, whatever remains, is what we will receive in heaven, where it will be applicable there. But in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12, he says, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Well, they certainly were patient and they certainly expressed faith, but we have no need to be patient in a similar way. Our patience is quite unique. I mean, we certainly are patient concerning his growth and maturity of us as we depend and trust on him to complete the work that he began. No doubt about that. However, the patience is different. It's just simply unique compared to what they were looking forward to. They were looking forward to something, and yet we have now received that which they were looking forward to. Our patience is now the implications of what we have received as a result of what our God has accomplished for us. And their faith was more a trust in what would be taking place in the future. However, our faith now is a response to what he has already done in the past. It is our response to the truth that he has already revealed. And in a more personal way, it is your response to what he reveals to you uniquely and specifically as you live your life on a daily basis. Should he take the time to speak with you concerning anything in your life, then that is his truth being communicated to you. He personally is sharing something with you and your response to that truth, your response in terms of you believe That which is true, you respond to it and you patiently live your life with the expectation that it will be realized in a way that will then further manifest your God to you so that you will know him more in a more personal, intimate way. And so again, in verse 11, where he says, and we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises, well, to the Hebrews who were struggling with the gospel and were struggling with the differences between law and grace, it would be a desire that they would finally believe in what had already been accomplished. That they would not just believe and hope and have faith and trust as Abraham did, but to go beyond that and to actually believe that it has been truly realized and that we get to walk in the reality of what the Messiah has already accomplished for us, not walk with the hope of what he may do in the future, because what he has done now is more than what we could possibly have a need for while we are still here. In verse 13, the writer goes on to say, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you, and so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge Would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. When the writer refers to Abraham, he refers to him as someone who patiently waited. In verse 15, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 15, he says, And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise, referring to the promise of the multiplication of him. This promise was fulfilled when Isaac was born. That was the fulfillment of the promise that God gave, specifically in this context. But, you know, I can't help but think about Ishmael when I think about whether or not he was patiently waiting, because in the meantime, we had Ishmael come to be, and I would consider that to be a little bit of a waver concerning Abraham's patience. But regardless of that, the Lord still fulfilled his promise, that it did not depend on Abraham. Abraham did believe his God, but the Lord our God still fulfilled his end of the bargain, fulfilled his covenant fulfilled what he declared he would do personally for Abraham, he still fulfilled that regardless of Abraham's waver with Ishmael, regardless of whether or not Abraham believed. Abraham did believe, and through that the Lord acknowledged that and gave him further promises as a result. But even so, the reality is, is that Abraham believed his God, and even though he wavered a little bit with Ishmael, he still believed his God. And that was accounted for righteousness. He trusted in his God. He then patiently waited to see how his God would fulfill what he had promised. So we also, we believe our God. And we trust our God. But instead of waiting patiently to see how he may fulfill his promise, or how he will dispense an inheritance to us, we don't wait for that. We don't live like that. We don't live as our forefathers lived. We now live on the basis of the inheritance that we have already received. We now live on the basis of the fulfillment of the promises that were made. We get to walk with a greater peace, with a greater rest in our hearts. We get to walk with our God in a unique way on the basis of what he has already accomplished. We get to relate to him and he gets to relate to us in an extraordinarily unique way in comparison with the people before the time of Christ Jesus. This uniqueness, this unique relationship that we now have with our God is possible because he no longer holds our sins against us. That's what our Messiah accomplished for us. So that we could be drawn near to our God in a personal, intimate way. And this personal, intimate way is described as him being able to love us Him being able to accept us, Him being able to dwell with us and within us and will never leave us, who will consistently guide us and lead us into all truth, regardless of who we are, regardless of the lives that we live, regardless of the circumstances that we are confronted with. He will speak to us individually and uniquely about the truths and the realities that we are confronted with within our daily lives so that we can see the world through his eyes, we can hear the world through his ears, we can understand what he is doing, we can see what he is doing, we can be a part of what he is doing as he guides us and leads us in the way that he desires us to go. This is something that is very unique that our forefathers described in the Old Testament could have never known. Abraham certainly did walk with God, ate with God, talked with him, spoke with him as a friend, That's real. That's understandable. But you have a greater opportunity to know him in a more personal way, because he doesn't relate to you on the basis of your sin anymore. He doesn't relate to you as he related to Abraham. He can share new things with you. He can relate to you in a unique way, in a different way, that he could not fully relate to Abraham. So your God can relate to you not only as a friend, but as someone greater. And this can only be described as to say that he is your true God. He is yours and you are his. And there is no comparison because these are qualities that he has reserved only for himself. No one can love you as he will. No one can accept you as he will. No one can give you the understanding that he gives you, that he will give you, as you listen and as you are attentive to what he may share with you. Continuing in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17, he says, In the same way God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. In verse 17, again, so that we may know the unchangeableness of his purpose, that he has a purpose. He has many purposes. And to understand these purposes is vital to understanding your God. How can you expect to know him without knowing what his purpose is? How can you expect to relate to him without understanding what he's actually doing and how he's relating to the world that he has created and why he is relating to the world that he has created? For example, the fundamental purpose of his creating this world to begin with was simply to create a people so that they would have an opportunity to choose whether or not they wanted to know who he is. And if they wanted to know who he is, they would have an opportunity to know who he is. And with that opportunity, if they would actually take that opportunity and strive with it and live with it and pursue it, then he could reveal himself to them so that we might know him, know who he is, and understand further purposes that he has individual unique ones that he has, as he is an active participant in the world that he has created. In verse 18, so that by two unchangeable things, the first unchangeable thing is that his purpose is unchangeable, as described in verse 17. And the other unchangeable thing is described here, in which it is impossible for God to lie. That is unchangeable. His word is unchangeable. His testimony is unchangeable. He certainly gives his testimony and his word in different contexts. For example, in the Old Covenant, he was saying certain things. In the New Covenant, he says other things. But that has to do with the uniqueness and the purposes of the covenants and how he was able to use those to draw us to himself. We have a hope that is set before us, that those who take refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of a hope, the hope set before us. And this hope... We have as an anchor of the soul a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. Okay, at the end of verse 19, I believe this gives a hint concerning this hope and what this hope is. It's helpful to have an understanding or a definition concerning this hope, otherwise you have this hope in what? I mean, it's helpful to have hope, but hope in what? What? Hope that things will get better, hope that things will get worse, hope that things will change, hope that things will not change. What kind of hope are you talking about? What kind of hope are you thinking about? Well, there is this one hope that is sure and steadfast, which enters within the veil. To enter within the veil, I believe this has to do with a hope that we would know Him in a greater way, that we would continually grow in an understanding, in a knowledge, in a relationship with him so that we can continually grow in knowing our God. That is a hope. And it is a hope that goes well beyond academic exercises or well beyond theological discussions or well beyond denominational debates. It goes well beyond that. It goes within a veil. But what is this veil? What is he talking about concerning this veil? Well, this veil is in reference to the veil in the temple, the veil between the holy place and the most holy place, the Holy of Holies, the place where our God dwelt over the Ark of the Covenant. That place was where our God dwelt, where he was found, in the tabernacle and later in the Temple of Solomon. And then at a future point, our God departed from the Temple. That's another story. But this word, this expression, this phrase gives a picture as it relates to the Temple of our God where he dwelled. You see, no one could ever go past that veil, except for the high priest, and he could only go once a year. And when he did go, he went within the most holy place with a rope tied around his leg in the event that the Lord struck him dead so that they could pull him out of there. But he only went in once a year, and he certainly was not there for very long, and then he left. There was no opportunity, really, for the high priest to sit down and have a simple conversation with the living God, to ask him what he thought about various things. That was not what that was about. So not even the high priest of Israel could enter within the veil for any other purpose than the purpose that our God declared, and that certainly did not include having a conversation with our God, talking with him, relating to him, asking him, hey, do you like me or do you not like me? Do you accept me or do you not accept me? Do do you love me? Those kinds of questions were not permitted. They were not a part of the temple. They were not a part of the temple services or the sacrifices. They were not a part of the Day of Atonement. Our hope is that we may know our God. That's why we're here. That's what we are doing, is we are living our lives in such a way so that our God can have many opportunities to show us who He is within and through the world that we participate in, within and through our lives. Within and through us, He takes the opportunity to reveal Himself to us, and we have a hope that we will grow to know him. In verse 19, this is Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19, again, he says, this hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil. These words give us a picture that we have a hope that we may know who he is, he who was behind the veil. In verse 20, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Jesus entered as a forerunner. Now, he certainly did not enter into the temple in Jerusalem. He entered into the true temple, the true tabernacle, the one that's in the kingdom of heaven. The one that was here on earth was nothing more than a copy. It was not the real temple. The Lord Jesus stepped into the true temple, the real temple, the real tabernacle, went into the real holy place through the true veil, that veil that is between the holy place and the most holy place where the true Ark of the Covenant is, the true mercy seat. And Jesus entered in as a forerunner, someone who was before us. So who's coming behind him? You, me, his children, his believers, the priesthood of God, us, the ones who have been saved, When we enter into the kingdom of heaven, we will have access to the true temple of God. And this access is not to just see the temple from a distance and look in awe at it. And it is not just access to be able to enter in through the outer court into the inner court and to see what's taking place there, but it is access into the most holy place to go through the veil. The Lord Jesus was a forerunner. That means that he was running a four of us, before us, he's running ahead of us. But that doesn't mean that he's outrunning us and so we're never gonna catch up to him. We're gonna catch up to him just fine. We're going to go where he has gone and we are going to see who he has seen and we will see a manifestation of our God to the extent where we will know him for who he is and we will be with him throughout the rest of eternity. This is his promise. And this is a hope that is true and will be realized in the end, which will again be a new beginning. I have done a series of programs on the subject of Jesus, our High Priest, or Jesus, our Priest. And I would like to encourage you to listen to those programs. You can find those on the Internet, in my radio archive, or you can contact me And I can send you the CDs on this subject, that is Jesus our priest, because this is an important thing to understand, and that is that we are priests according to his priesthood. And his priesthood is not a priesthood that is the same as the Levitical priesthood. He is our priest, he is the high priest, and he has made a way for us to be able to have direct access to our God through what he has accomplished through who he is, and it just so happens that who he is, is our God who manifested in the flesh, dwelt among us, and provided us with salvation. He is our God, and we can have an opportunity to see him and to meet him within the veil, in the true temple, in the true tabernacle of God, so that we can see him for who he is and know him in a way that no one could have ever known according to the Old Covenant. That is the value and the purpose of the new covenant so that you may know your God
0: you have been listening to the broadcast outreach of Living God Ministries you can hear all of our programs for free through our radio archive at livinggodministries.net that is livinggodministries.net